This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to another episode of Star Diary, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we talk you through the month ahead and reveal the best objects to see in the night sky over the coming weeks. Um, and I'm joined as ever by our reviews editor and resident practical astronomy expert, Mr. Paul Money. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining me once again. Hi, Ian. Yes, good to be back again. <laughs> How have you found um, 21 so far in terms of stargazing? Because we're about a quarter of the way through the year already. It's hard to believe what we are. Oh, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, you know, we we haven't really had such good nights. Um, it's been quite, a, I think, a, quite a poor season so far. And I know a lot of colleagues, uh, both on social media and elsewhere, have been saying the same thing, that, you know, that they have been few and far between the really good nights. Ironically, a couple of nights ago, it was really good. And guess who decided to have a bath because the weather forecast was supposed to be cloudy. So Muggins <laughs> had a bath and then uh, comes downstairs only to find, uh, oh, there's the wonderful clear sky. So... Uh, <laughs> You know, I wasn't prepared to risk it. I wasn't prepared to risk it. But, uh, you know, there were tears in my eyes looking at those stars. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And the other thing, of course, we, we always have this battle between lunar and deep sky observed because, you know, we want the deep sky. So we want the clear nights when, you know, the moon's out the way. And, of course, what happens is we often find the clear skies are when the moon's up. <laughs> yeah. So, so the moon's coming back into play now. So uh, and it's just one of those things. But uh, that happens every month. So we just have to take it as it comes. But... Uh, Yes, I could do with a few more clear nights, I must admit. Yeah, and, and there's definitely, you can definitely sense the the sort of the days getting longer and the evenings stretching out. Do, do you sort of like, as a 
as a practical astronomer, do you sort of dread the the, the sort of the, the coming of spring and summer because you know that the nights are going to be shorter? <laughs> I used to be well known in my colleagues at Marks and Spencers, whereby as soon as we hit sort of like the uh, the spring equinox, I was going, no, no, the light nights are coming. Oh no, woe is me! And they're all going, hang on, we're 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 looking forward to the summer for the holidays, etc. And so, of course, yeah. they didn't like me in the summer when I turned around at the summer solstice. Yes, at last, the skies are going to start getting darker. They said, you. <laughs> miserable person you are i said no i'm an astronomer you know same thing <laughs> yes so uh, you know it, but the, there's still plenty to do it used to be um, a case of the summer skies were very light nights and uh, that's when people packed away the equipment cleaned it all up tidied it up and yet there's tons you can do so it, it isn't quite as bad and uh, and i actually learned that when once i and you've got to remember i've now been doing the reviews editor for 15 years would you believe i know sure but uh, <laughs> but one thing I quickly learned was because you're reviewing equipment, you have no choice. We've got to review equipment during the summer. And I actually found that I was seeing more objects than I ever thought possible in the light nights because you basically had to use the equipment. So, uh, yeah, so it doesn't, it isn't quite as daunting a prospect now, but uh, it is nice to have nice dark skies for astro imaging. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, but, you know, it isn't the all and end all of everything now when the skies become light. Although you have to bear in mind the further north we are in the UK the worse it gets and I've never gotten a summer holiday where we went up we were up near Fort William as a family touring round and uh, one night it was a beautiful clear night but the sky was so light you know you could barely <laughs> see anything so I was quite I was looking forward oh summer night yeah and then I realised because of the being north and quite quite far north um, it actually was really light sky so uh, yeah I do feel for uh, our Scots neighbours uh, because yes, they they have really light nights during the summer, sort of thing, you know. So uh, yes, almost as bad as being in daytime. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us on nicely, though, to to April, where um, things are starting to get um, a bit lighter, definitely, and the nights are getting shorter. But um, there's still there's still plenty to see in April, isn't there? Oh yes, we've got lots to see, sort of, thing, because we again we have the usual mix of conjunctions, sort of thing, the moon passing various objects. So uh, there's always something to see. That's the beauty about the night sky. There's always something to look out for. And uh, how long this will last for? Because we've also got the nova in Cassiopeia, which has recently been discovered and was brightening. Uh, so uh, that's something to keep an eye on because they do fade, uh, but they usually take a bit of time to fade. So uh, during April, you know, have a look at that and see whether it's still. Glowing. Uh, and see how well it's fading or how quickly it's actually fading away. So that's an, un an unusual adaption sort of thing, but uh, that's a nova. We've got to remember that nova is not the same as a supernova. A nova is usually two stars, one's transferring mass onto the other, and it's effectively a huge, great explosion on the surface that lasts for probably weeks and probably even a, a month or two. But a supernova, of course, is, wow, bang, <laughs> the star has gone bang. So uh, a bit more drastic, isn't it, sort of thing with that. But uh, So that, that, I mean, that's an extra bonus for the month, so we'll keep an eye on that. I've, I've, I've been looking at it. So uh, it's quite interesting. So will that, will that be visible in the in Cassiopeia? Um, yes, it's not far. Eye? Yeah, if you if you take um, sort of like um, CAF, the N star Beta Cassiopeiae, and then head off towards Messier fifty two, um, it actually it, I found it forms a bit of a right angle triangle with M fifty two and the Bubble Nebula sort of thing. So that's the region you want to be looking in, and um, and I could see it in binoculars. It, it wasn't ultra bright in binoculars. I mean, it's, it's I think it was about seven and a half magnitude. Um, 
uh, and I got a few photographs of it. Um, but, uh, you know, you just don't know how these things are actually going to behave. So uh, it's worth just keeping up because you never know. You might be the one where you suddenly see the Nova resurge, you know, suddenly come mm. back and go bright again. So this is why it's worth keeping a tabs on them. And of course, the scientists like uh, our sort of data because if we can keep tabs on these more than the professionals. Uh, so this is where we can contribute quite often to uh, the science of astronomy. On with the rest of the month then, uh, Paul, and what else should we, should we be looking out for in April? Well, the ironic thing is, I saw a few posts um, some weeks ago saying, oh yeah, I'll get Mars now because it'll be gone shortly. And I'm thinking, they don't know the sky that well then, uh, because Mars, its motion tends to keep it slightly ahead of the sun. So at the moment, it's actually still visible. It's quite long lasting, I have to say. So uh, we're actually going to have it going from Taurus uh, through between the horns of the, the bull and then into Gemini. Uh, and in the process sort of thing, you know, it actually uh, makes a, a good view for us to visually. I mean, it's, you know, it's a red star and it's moving. Planet means uh, wandering star. So it's well worth keeping an eye on that. And, and an interesting thing I find, because often we use these events to find objects you probably wouldn't normally see. And Mars is particularly good because between the first and the third, it passes above the star cluster, NGC 1746. Uh, now, we tend to think of Taurus being the Hyades star cluster and the Pleiades seven sister star cluster, and of course, the red eye of the bull. But uh, if you go up in a diagonal line from Aldebaran, there's two clusters, 1647 and 1746. And as it happens, Mars passes 1746 quite close, so it's an ideal time to use a bright planet to find a fainter deep sky object. So I love these sort of events, I and mean, it makes a good photograph as well, so you could take a series of photographs showing Mars going past the actual star cluster, and uh, and you can see the difference in brightness between the fainter star cluster, which does need binoculars, there's no doubt about it, um, but uh, the bright Mars, which of course is naked eye. So uh, that's a really nice one to look out for, sort of thing, to catch that cluster because if you've never seen it you've added another star cluster to your uh, um, your bucket list of deep sky objects now mars itself does carry on well if we do mars first let's get mars out of the way because it's in the evening sky at the moment and this is why i think it's great to draw our attention to it because of course i mean we all know that the perseverance rover is there and hopefully around about early april they will deploy the helicopter. So when they're deploying the helicopter, if you've got a clear night in the first week or so of Mars and they deploy the helicopter, you'll be able to go out and look at Mars itself and say, another first has taken place, the first flight on Mars. I think that'd be quite something. And did you know, uh, Ian, that they actually have a tiny piece of material from the Wright Brothers uh, aircraft sort of thing uh, they use? They sold off little bits of material to help fund other projects. And one of those little pieces is actually on the Perseverance rover, on the helicopter. Ingenuity, no. it's called, sort of thing. Didn't so that. uh, so that'll be, I mean, you look up Mars and you've got a link with the Wright Brothers' first flight and you've got the first flight of this helicopter when you look up and see Mars in the evening sky. I, I love little things like that. I love I love this sort of like you know, convergence of the space flight side sort of thing with the real view of the night sky, the actual proper astronomy, uh, to know that you look up there and you're thinking, wow, history is being made yet again, the first flight taking place on Mars itself. And you can see the planet. You can see the planet in the night sky. 
Now, the thing about Mars is that uh, it, it is moving quite fast, and we're quite lucky, as I say, it moves from Taurus into Gemini towards the last week of the month. And uh, what we find is that on about the 13th is exactly between the star Alneth which is in Origa, as it happens, uh, and Zeta Tauri. Now, Zeta Tauri has the Crab Nebula. So if you're into deep sky, have a search around for the Crab Nebula near Zeta itself, because that's an interesting deep sky. It's the first of Charles Messier's list sort of thing that uh, he put down. And I always think it's quite unique. It's the only supernova in his list, and it happens to be number one. So there we are, sort of thing. But on the 13th, Mars lies almost equidistant between the two bright stars. So I always like these sort of lineups as well, sort of thing. I know they're not scientifically important, but they're fun, you know, that they're, they're nice to look out for. And then as we move a little bit further into the month, the moon creeps into the view. Now, the thing about the moon, it'll be a thick crescent. It's a waxing crescent, sort of thing. It's waxing towards full, but it's a, a thick crescent. And on the 16th, the moon is actually quite close to that other cluster we mentioned, the 1746. But uh, the moonlight might drown out the cluster by then. But on the 17th, the moon will be to the left of Mars. So that'll be a nice, again, photographic and visual observation as well. And then towards the end of the month, as the moon moves out, Mars, it, it, it's relentless. It's carrying on. It, I mean, it's a bit like Pluto. They devoted Pluto, you know, but Pluto doesn't care. It's in orbit around the sun. It doesn't matter what we think, and neither does Mars. It keeps marching on through the night sky. And on the 26th and the 27th, the actual uh, planet, the red planet, uh, passes above the, the really bright star cluster, Messier 35, which uh, is uh, it's one of those showpieces, I think, sort of thing. I, I, everybody goes for the Pleiades, and I agree, the Pleiades is the main showpiece, but I like M35, and if you put binoculars on it and they've got large binoculars, you'll see a smudge to its lower right, and that is another cluster as well, NGC 2158, uh, so that's well worth having a look at as well. Now, as it happens... The moon actually does a cult uh, in the early hours of the morning, literally just into the early hours of the morning uh, of the 18th. It, the moon will cover M35. There's a slight problem there. It, it, it looks great on paper or, or certainly on the screen, but then you've got to take into account the brightness of the moon and that will dim down a lot of the stars of the cluster itself. But this occultation will still be fascinating to watch sort of thing on the, the actual, I say, that about the early morning of the 18th as well. But I say Mars passes M35 on the 26th and 27th as it moves into Gemini and ends the month. Really, at what I would say is the feet of Castor, and Castor is one of the twins, Gemini. Yeah, I love those, um, those uh, conjunctions, especially with the moon and a planet. It always just looks absolutely fantastic, doesn't it? And as as you say, I mean, whenever there happens to be, so, you know, whenever um, Cassini was around Saturn or something like that, or, you know, you've got the rovers and the robots on, and the, uh, on, on Mars, looking at a planet, and obviously, you know, just in case anyone's confused, you, you, you can't actually see, you can't actually <laughs> see the rovers on the planet. But just, just looking up at that at that moment in time and knowing that there's something that was made by humans on, on that distant star i often think it must have been crazy during the apollo missions to look up at the moon and and know that there were human beings on the surface of the moon it's, it's sort of a similar thing isn't it yes i mean to look up at the planet mars and and and, and have that knowledge and i find this with a lot of astronomy is that often you know sometimes something can be quite boring i, I always think of the quasar 3c273 in virgo it looks like a 12th magnitude star it doesn't look remarkable at all 
But now we know it's actually the core of a quasar, you know, uh, you know, an incredibly bright core of a galaxy, a really active galaxy. When these went through the, the, the phase of the quasar sort of thing, you know, where there was a bright burst of galactic star formation uh, making this era of the quasars. So, uh, so it may not look dramatic, but it's the knowledge that goes behind that observation. You know, and again, it's like looking at some of the stars. You may look at the stars and they may look on their own. It's then knowing, well, actually, it's a double star. So you put the magnification up and you find a star is split into two sort of thing. So you suddenly find you're looking at a binary system. It could be a line of sight, but quite often they're a true binary system. And then you think of the distances. And as we refine the distances to the brighter stars in the sky, you know, we've got, I think, the distance out now to something like two to 3,000 light years, quite accurate. And I think that's amazing. When I look at a star and think, they know the distance to that star. I think that is phenomenal. You know, so, mm. uh, yes, yeah. And the moon, as it goes past these, I mean, one of the one of the things I was going to mention is that you know we, we do spend a lot of time in the evening sky, but let's just flick to the morning sky because we've got another example, um, and it's a strange one. It was, I find it an interesting one because it's at the beginning, at the end of the month, and when you get events happening at the beginning of the month and involving the moon, because of the motion of the moon taking 27 days to go around a sort of thing, then in actual fact, you know, where we get month from, month as such, what we find is that often the moon returns to the same patch of sky. So on the early morning of the second, we've actually got the moon above left of Antares, the red heart of the scorpion. And, uh, you know, I mean, I always remember, I mean, I always look out for when Mars is close to it because I love to compare the colours of them as such. I still find Antares a bit redder, actually, than Mars myself. But that's probably a personal perception. But on the second, on the morning of the second, you do have to go up in the early hours of the morning sort of thing, you know, ideally around about twilight, morning twilight, before it gets too bright. But the moon, it will be, it's a, it's a waning uh, crescent, Quite well, actually, it's a gibbous phase to be honest, and it's uh, you know quite prominent above Antares, and it'll wash out all the other stars, sort of thing. But then, twenty-seven days later, on the 29th, it's actually to the upper right of Antares. In fact, it's, it's not quite, but almost in between uh, Beta, uh, which is Graphius, and Antares, which is uh, Alpha uh, Scorpius. So, uh, you know, this is well worth having a look at sort of thing because I love these things. So, so you, could, you could do a photograph on the second capturing the position of the moon in relation to Antares and then you could do another photograph on the 29th if it's clear because <laughs> that's usually what thwarts me. <laughs> um, you may get one, but the other one will probably be cloudy. But you get the moon in a similar area of sky as well. So uh, I always look out for them as well sort of, because it only happens at the beginning of the month. So the first and the second, and the, the guess which month is always a problem. That's put you on the spot, hasn't it? Feb. February. Yeah, because February, of course, is just 28 days. So, uh, you know, if it just falls on, say, the 2nd of February, you won't get it. It'll happen on the 1st of March. So you don't get it in the same month. So it has to be, you know, 28 days or more sort of thing. Well, it's got to be more than that, really. really needs to be uh, around. If, if 28 days is all right if it's on the 1st. You, you've just got a chance sort of thing. But as a rule, um, months with 30 and 31 days stand a better chance for you seeing these events at the beginning and the end of the month as well. So that's sort of uh, the moon above Antares at the beginning and the end of the month sort of thing uh, in April. So uh, two events. I say, I used to work for a, a major retailer. I said, that's two for the price of one. <laughs> or is it buy one, get one free? <laughs> yeah, it's nice those, um, those sort of events where you, you can sort of um, see the, the mechanics of the solar system at work, you know, and you can you sort of see the, the sort of like the uh, cyclical nature of everything. It's nice. 
Exactly, sort of thing, because, and, and we can predict these so well. Uh, I mean, I sometimes um, have discussions with people who say, well, how can you predict this so well? I says, it's science, you know, it's mm. mathematics, you know, even the, uh, the sort of Greeks and the Romans sort of thing, they could work it out. They, they had problems, of course, because they didn't understand how orbital motion actually occurred. They, they always worked on perfect circles. Uh, and that's why Ptolemy introduced the epicycle. So a circle on the circle to try to comprehend compensate for the fact that the planets weren't always quite in the same position against the background stars. And so, uh, you know, but we now know better. So we can calculate this. I mean, software, we can calculate thousands of years into the past and we can calculate thousands of years into the future. And I think that is amazing. That shows, as you say, the clockwork nature of the solar system. We can see that when we look up and see these events actually taking place. Now, if we stick with the morning sky... And, you know, you, you, this is where you, the dedication really comes out, doesn't it, sort of thing, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm one of those, that to, I'm all right if I stay up all night, sort of thing, I can I can cope with that. But uh, if I go to bed and the alarm goes off, I'm afraid I'm one of those that are more likely to smash the alarm to bits sort of, and go back to sleep. <laughs> so uh, there's a confession, isn't it, sort of thing. But I'm, I'm actually quite good at staying up, or I used to be. I'm getting old now, you know, sort of thing. It's beginning to ca- uh, catch up with me. But... On the 6th and 7th, the Tuesday and Wednesday, 6th and 7th of April, you know, try to look towards the southeast and you'll have two bright planets emerging into the twilight. We've got Saturn and we've got Jupiter. And on the 6th and the 7th, that moon on the 6th is thought to the lower right of Saturn. And then on the 7th, a lot harder because it's really low to the horizon, but on the 7th, it's actually below right of Jupiter as well. And you really have to be looking in the early morning twilight about an hour to 40 minutes before sunrise so you know you've got to time it right sort of thing and as I have a problem with it the southeast horizon is awful you do need a good clear southeast horizon to be able to get them uh, so you want an uncluttered horizon really to grab that as well so uh, so it's nice to have quite the planets returning in the sky we've still got Mars in the evening sky and we've got Jupiter and Saturn in the morning sky as well sort of thing so uh, you know that's always well worth looking if you like getting up <laughs> if you like getting <laughs> up that is <laughs> it is it is also one of those um, situations where we, we we sort of do have to point out, you know, the potential danger, don't we? Sort of observing that close to to uh, sunrise. Yes, the, the key is not to observe too long after that sort of thing and to work out when sunrise is. And software nowadays, I mean, you know, planetarium software, and uh, you've got uh, apps on the mobile phone that can actually show you the sky. And so you can work out when the sun will actually rise for your particular latitude. You can see it graphically. So it gives you an idea of how long you can go before you have to stop. And of course, the uh, in the morning sky, the sky getting lighter and lighter will be a very good clue as well. But uh, mm. it's surprising you can get easily carried away you know especially if you're using binoculars you get carried away looking at the sky just concentrating on say looking at jupiter and saturn and uh, the next thing you know sort of thing you sweep off to the left and boom, you've got a bright object and you've got the, the sun so you do have to be careful but i say nowadays planetarium maps allow you to work it out quite accurately so you can get a good idea where to look and how safe to be as well mm-hmm. do you find it um 
more sort of disappointing when Jupiter and Saturn are are morning objects like this? Would you do you get frustrated and you think I, I can't wait until they're good evening objects again? Um, yes, as I say, now I'm getting older. I'm doing fine in the, the morning objects. I'm beginning. Oh dear, they're in the morning sky, and yeah. I can't wait for them to be in the evening sky. But there's a caveat to that because often you find the morning skies are more steady. The seeing conditions are a lot better. Some of my best observations, I have to say, in the past were when as I was working for a retailer, I had to get up very early, get into the store often before sunrise so we could have the early morning deliveries. And the skies were gorgeous. So I had my best views of the early morning planet sort of thing, especially sort of Venus and Mercury. Uh, And I I remember a real memorable one where they were both uh, rising in a a, a golden sky. Uh, And I pulled over. I was was late for work. (laughs) I was only about five or six minutes late sort of thing. And and, uh, as it happened, I'd taken a photograph but this was in the days before mobile and digital cameras. So I had to wait until I developed pictures to show them what I'd take. When I showed the foreman, he was, oh, I see now why you were late. Oh, well, I let you off now. I said, but at the time you didn't. <laughs> it was, why are you late? You should have been here. I said, but it was a clear sky. I don't care. You've got a job to do. And he was right in that respect. I should have settled for a bit earlier. But it was a spur of the moment situation because the sky was just so good. And I, in those days, I often carried my camera gear with me. Um, so that, uh, you know, I could capture any moments like that. Uh, and of course, nowadays, it's a lot easier with mobile phones, you know. And they, they're so capable now. It's incredible. So uh, people are capturing more in the sky now than they used to do. And they can capture these sort of events much more easily, I have to say. Definitely, definitely. Um, and also, you know, when you sort of think back on that time, which wh- wh- what's your fondest What's your what's your fonder memory? You know, going into work that morning or, or taking a photograph of the planets. Um, well, I mean, it, it was worth it to me to be a yeah. little bit late, sort of thing. You know, I hadn't planned on. I mean, but one, uh, the trouble is, once you set up the equipment and start taking the photograph, you can get carried away. And I think yeah. actually, I was probably about ten minutes late. Um, you know, which surely isn't the end and be all of the world, sort of thing. No, that's not too but, bad. Uh, but you know, but uh, you know, the timing is important for deliveries being there, sort of thing. So yeah. I could understand his point. But uh, the moment was such a a dramatic one, such a gorgeous one that I couldn't not stop. And I knew a good lay-by as well sort of thing, a rough lay-by on a little lane as I was heading because I'd take the back roads to go to work. And I always remember I was able to reach that, park up and get set up and take the pictures. But it is very easy to get caught up in the moment and just keep observing. Um, And then I suddenly thought, oops, I looked at me, watch, oh dear. (laughs) Or something like that, I said. (laughs) I better get moving to work. (laughs) So it's quickly throw everything into the boot of the car so it was all well in and then dashed into work sort of thing. But uh, when I showed them the picture though, they were, wow, I didn't know you could do that. You know, so, uh, and once I'd got their attention, it was interesting because over the time then, whenever we could see, because uh, sometimes, of course, in the winter it's dark, and I started showing staff members Mercury and Venus in the twilight sky and, and Jupiter, and, I, and we had the early Mir space station passes, and uh, I actually had two of the warehousemen one early morning. I said, we got there, we, the delivery hadn't turned up. If we go out onto the roof now, we can watch the Mir space station go past the moon. And what I didn't tell them was it would go into the Earth's shadow. So we were watching it and they're going, wow, that time, because I'd, I'd got it timed out exactly how long it would be and what time it would roughly go past the moon. So it shot past the moon and then I waited because it faded. Into, and they went, what's happened? What's happened? And I said, ah, it's gone into the Earth's shadow. 
that's what's happened. And they were gobsmacked sort of thing, you know. Oh. So, uh, you know, so they were really chuffed. And after that, I, I made a point of sometimes trying to show them things in the night sky, you know, just to show them, this is why I get so excited about it. They still think <laughs> I was a nutter. <laughs> and they were probably right as well. <laughs> but that's the fun. And that's why we like to, this is why we do it in the magazine as well sort of thing, you know. We do the Sky Diaries. It's to put over that fun of looking out at these events taking place, you know, and they are absolutely gorgeous, you know. Mm. And when you get people looking up, they, they don't realise what you can see until mm. they see it for themselves and they go, wow, you know. Speaking of getting people looking up, I mean, it, it's not ideal conditions and it's not one of the best of the year, but uh, the Lyrid Meteor Shower is um, something that's also worth pointing out this month, isn't it? It is. The, the thing with the Lyrids is that it is the first major shower, really, of the year. I know, I know we've got Meteor Shower in January sort of thing. It's cold, isn't it? Cold. Mm. But the point is with the Lyrid sort of thing, we are getting the uh, better evenings. And uh, the thing about this, it is in early morning because it's Lyra. Uh, and there's a little story there in actual fact because the radiant doesn't actually occur on the 22nd in Lyra. It's in Hercules next door. So I always thought it was quite funny them being called the April Lyrids when in actual fact they should be called the Hercules sort of thing. Mm. So they are, new term for you sort of thing. But the actual radiant drifts into Lyra. And I suspect sort of thing in the early days, it's down to the constellation boundaries and how they've been actually uh, rearranged over the, well, last century in actual fact, they were actually rearranged and they've they followed the RA and deck lines instead of just being a random drawing trying to take into account the shape of the constellation, the artwork, as you might say. So, uh, but I mean, it, it does peak actually during daytime and that's a real bad thing, you know, it's a shame sort of thing. Although nowadays people are using, of course, um, radio detectors, meteor detectors during the daytime. And we did a DIY project a few months ago in the magazine uh, covering that, but Mary and Mark McIntyre as well. So, you know, that is becoming very, very popular because you can do your astronomy in daytime, hey, in the warmth and indoors. <laughs> that's <laughs> cheating. No, no, I need to be outside freezing cold sort of thing staring up the night sky actually I'm beginning to think I'm warming to the idea now of a meteor detector <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but but it does mean that you should be able to observe if you've got a meteor detection system you can actually you know, detect them during the daytime which I find fascinating and that adds Fantastic. to science as well you know but it's worth looking out on the evenings of the 21st into the 22nd and then the 22nd into the 23rd but they will be low down over in the northeast because Lyra is is very low in the sky in April uh, at that time. So you have to wait until sort of quite, you know, just before morning twilight before you actually get um, it up reasonably high. And the moon's generally around as well, so moonlight will wash out a lot of the meteors. But there will be the occasional bright one. So, you know, I always think, no, it's worth going out. Just try it. You never know what you might see. And look at the... Re we've had sort of... March has been amazing. You know, the, the last month, we, we had quite a few really bright... We had fireballs, for heaven's sake. Mm. So, and we even had a meteorite collected sort of thing, because this is the thing I find with people, is that they get confused, because there are three terms for that material, depending on where it is. If it's in space, it's a meteoroid. If it's actually burning up through the atmosphere, which is burning, is a bad name for it, but it's it's disintegrating in the atmosphere. That's the meteor that we see. But if it's big enough to survive to the ground as fragments, it's a meteorite. So that's an oid, 
an or or an it, <laughs> depending on where it is. And yet it's all the same object, really. It just depends on where you actually observe it. So uh, no end of friends say, oh, did you see that meteorite going across the sky? And oh, the pedant in me is there trying to, oh, no, no, you mean <laughs> you a, a meteor, a meteorite lands. <laughs> but of course, in this case, it actually did. So well, well done for the people who recovered it. So, uh, you yeah. know, so, you know, keep a look out. Even if there's moonlight up, keep a look out for the lyrids on the night of the 21st, 22nd and see whether you can spot any. But better in the early morning, really, uh, because the radiant will have climbed higher. So, uh, yeah, do go out and have a go at that. Fantastic. Um, what else is going to be happening in April then, Paul? Well, um, I like occultations. Um, the weather doesn't like me because I've missed most of them that I wanted to actually observe. So that's pretty typical, isn't it? And we've mentioned that the moon occults M35. But actually, on the very last day of April, the moon will occult Theta of Ushai. And so the best bet is to sort of look out. I mean, remember what I said about uh, on the 29th, the moon will be between Antares and Graphius. Well, the next night it lies just to the right of Theta of Ushii. And so uh, have a look at that sort of thing because in the early hours, it will actually occult it. So well worth looking at. And the thing about this is that the, the occultation occurs on the daylight side. So the beauty is you'll be able to see the star right at the start and then the limb getting closer and closer until it covers it. And the star will wink out because it's a point source. Now seeing the reappearance is harder because the reappearance will be on the dark limb. But there's a bit of a, a caveat here because there's actually a, a fainter star, a magnitude six star called Hipparchus 84947 and it will appear first so technically it would have been occulted first as well but we were after theta but don't expect this fainter star to be oh there's theta wait a little bit longer because theta is magnitude 3.2 but again the appearance is instantaneous it's a point source sort of thing so uh, it will appear suddenly and by my calculations it depends on where you are in the UK sort of thing um, but to look around Mare Crisium around that region and the dark limb beyond that into space and just keep a general eye on that and suddenly that star will re- reappear a, a theta of Fiuchi so uh, I would love this sort of thing because I say again you're seeing the solar system in motion aren't you and Mm. occultation timings used to be very important for refining the shape and size of the moon so uh, not so much nowadays we've been there we know where it is (laughs) (laughs) they've got a radar actually uh, you know they they use the Apollo sort of laser uh, uh, reflectors uh, to see how the moon is slowly moving away from us as well so uh, but it's still fascinating to watch it And to finish off the month, um, we've mentioned Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, but in actual fact, in the evening sky, again at the end of the month, we're switching back to the evening sky now and we get Mercury and Venus come back. Now, they'll be in very bright evening twilight and again, 30 to 40 minutes after sunset. So you have to make sure the sun has set. Look towards the west-northwest. Venus will be much brighter than Mercury, always is. I mean, that's the one that we call the evening star, Venus. But look out from the 25th. They're both at their closest. Mercury will race up higher than Venus. Venus will be slower moving. But it's well worth having a look at sort of thing. They are very low down again you need a completely uncluttered horizon. 
So, you know, you, you, you really need to have no buildings, no trees or anything like that, a nice flat horizon in which to observe. But uh, use binoculars, but do make sure the sun has set, of course, before you actually do it. But west-northwest, and from the 25th, you'll see Mercury and Venus next to each other, but Mercury will climb higher into the sky, and then we'll see it again in May. We'll talk about that again in May, in actual fact. But uh, there we are. So there we'll, we will by then have Mercury and Venus and Mars in the evening sky and Jupiter and Saturn in the morning sky as well. So uh, the major bright planets will be back in play. Fantastic. So, you know, the nights may be getting shorter and the days longer, but it sounds like we're going to have even more to talk about in next month's podcast, Paul. And even though the lights, the skies are getting lighter, you know, there's, there's always plenty to look up in the night sky sort of thing to keep us happy, whether you're using naked eye binoculars or even a telescope as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks again uh, for, for joining us in the podcast, Paul, and for, you know, giving us your, your expert astronomy uh, insight. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Diary podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Spotify or Acast. 